listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Today's sermon is from John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do, you do not believe. The work that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, so, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for the good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he... Excuse me. If he called them God to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent unto the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Lord, in in some ways, Lord, I read every Sunday feels like an impossible task when we're taking your word about you, this magnificent and immeasurable God, and yet taking 45 to 55 minutes to 
hear it and expound upon it and apply it, Lord. It feels almost at times impossible, and this morning feels especially that way. Lord, there is so much in these verses, Lord, and so we just pray. I just ask as a weak little pastor with a weak little sermon that you would be present and that above all, your sheep would hear you, would see you and know you as we open up the scriptures and that we would be amazed at you, that we would find life in you, Lord, we, that we would continue to believe in who you are and what you've done, Lord, that it wouldn't just be one little moment of belief, Lord, but just daily continued belief. And so, Lord, may, may today, may you bolster our belief in you, Lord. And Lord, we know that belief as we've seen the gospel of John, it's not just a mere head knowledge. It is a love for you, a treasuring of you, a delighting in you. So Lord, we pray that that would be so today. Oh Lord, do your good work in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray and the church says, amen. Amen. <clears throat> uh, when I was little, my, uh, my friend and I, we would... In, in elementary school, we'd hang out, out, out at each other's home and we'd spend hours talking and making plans for how we would spend our grown-up life as superheroes. That's how I spent my elementary years, was planning to be a superhero. Uh, we had plans for what we would wear based off of what we had seen uh, typical superheroes wear, so that typically involved spandex and colors and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we, we, of course, would plan to have muscles and be strong when we would get bigger. We'd have cool cars with all sorts of gadgets on them. Uh, but eventually, the dream sort of just faded away as we realized, unless you have x-ray vision, you kind of need a, a normal day job. Um, but that was my elementary childhood dream. Later, later, I would come across an article fulfilling my childhood dream. In 2011, 10 citizens began patrolling the streets of Seattle in superhero costumes, declaring themselves as the Rain City Superhero Movement. That was pretty appealing to me, so I continued reading. Um, they were a group of self-proclaimed superheroes who sought to patrol the streets and fight crime. They had names like Thorn, The Mantis, Phoenix Jones, Red Dragon, Midnight Jack. Guys, you can just pick one. You pick one and take it home with your kids. Guys, I'm Purple Rain today. Purple Rain, kiddos. The group accomplished such heroic rescues such as stopping four people from robbing a blind man. They stopped several carjackings, helped stranded vehicles on the highways, stopped people from driving intoxicated, and specialized, they specialized in escorting people to their cars late at night. It was written in an article about them. One columnist said, in some ways, the crew are more like hall monitors than actual superheroes. Uh, in 2014, the group decided to end the Rain City superhero movement. And in two, 2022, one of the men was compelled to reveal his identity through a YouTube video. And, and guess what? To no one's surprise, he was just a normal man. To no one's surprise, he was just a normal man. He looked nothing like what you would hope a superhero to look like. Now, why do I, why do I say that? Well, because we think of heroes 
And we think of superheroes. We tend to have an idea about what they should look like. Big, strong, physically impressive. That, that's what we tend towards when we think of a, a hero. And today's passage in chapter 10, verse 22, tells us this is taking place. What's taking place today, John has been very intentional to tell us the scenes, what is happening, and there's a reason why. He, he typically tells us, especially if it involves a feast, because he wants us to see how Jesus is the yes and amen to that. And so we're told right away, this is, a, this is taking place during the Feast of Dedication. The feast was a, a celebration of God providing a hero, of God providing a rescuer, of God providing, if you want to say, a savior for God's people, a man named Judas Maccabeus with the name of, the nickname of Judas the Hammer. You can imagine what type of man he was. This feast was not one of the ordained Old Testament feasts. It came about during the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament times, so the intertestamental period. God's people were conquered by the Greeks, and one of the Greek kings, who was a really wicked guy, wanted to uh, enforce his sort of religion everywhere across all the land after coming out behind the, the footsteps of Alexander the Great. And so he took the temple and essentially began to make pagan sacrifices in the temple and dedicated the temple to the worship of Zeus. And he set up in the city all sorts of idols that people were to worship. When I was in Nepal, and some of you have been there and are familiar with this, as you walk through the city, it is not uncommon to see idols everywhere and to see people worshiping in filthy streets, in filthy places. It is honestly some of the grossest places you could be, yet there are idols there intended for people to worship. It feels as if there is a, a, an enslavement happening. That, that, that's what was happening here. And Judas the hammer rose up and stirred up the people in what is called the Maccabean revolt. They drove out the Greeks, crushed the idols, and retook the temple and had an eight-day celebration that they, they connected to. If you remember a few uh, weeks ago or a few chapters ago, they had a, a celebration that was sort of in connection, much like the Feast of Booths. If you remember, it was a joyful loud, dancing type of celebration. Candles were lit. There was all sorts of joy, jovial things happening during that time. And they took eight days to celebrate like that, singing, dancing, feasting, and they re, as they rededicated the temple to the worship of God. And so it took on the name, this feast, of, as the Feast of Dedication. It would continue on during the winter months, and later would eventually take on a sort of a new identity as Hanukkah in modern day Jews. It was a time when the Jews celebrated God providing a hero to rescue them. So in a sense, God had provided a savior. And so it marked the time when they were looking back at how God had provided this hero to save them. And then they were looking ahead for God to provide a future hero, a Messiah, a Savior, the Christ, who would rescue them in, in an even greater way. They were looking for a hero. They were looking for a rescuer, for a Savior. The problem is, they were looking for a hero or Savior who would look and be like Judas the Hammer. 
impressive, a war hero, would overtake the Romans, someone who could raise up the people and take over. They were looking for something like Judas the hammer, and instead, they got Jesus the shepherd. That's what we're to see here. God's people have always been looking for a Judas the hammer. And God said, I'm going to send Jesus the shepherd. But he's going to be far greater. He's going to be the savior that you had always hoped for. He's going to be better than what you saw in the past. Every hero that's come along, every savior that's come along before him, he's going to be greater than that. And his span, his reach of salvation is going to be far greater than just driving out the Greeks of the city. That's what we're to see here. They were wanting a Judas the hammer. Instead, God sent Jesus the shepherd. Looking for an impressive man. And they got a great, unimpressively looking, that's what Isaiah tells us, shepherd. So you can imagine the conflict here. The conflict that they're already beginning to have. But he is, nonetheless, the greatest savior and shepherd. The greatest hero they could ever have. But what we see over and over again is that not everyone sees him as the great savior and shepherd that they need, right? Not everyone will respond to him in worship and saying, yes, he is that. He is the great shepherd and savior that I need. Not everyone's responding that way. We've seen it over and over again in the gospel of John. Others, people will reject him. They will hear his claims and they will reject him, and even to the degree of wanting to kill him. And we are to hear this. We're, we're getting really close. It's, it's sort of amping up in the Gospel of John, where the Jews are just going to do whatever it takes. To, to, they, they are going to set their minds on killing Jesus. And John wants us to feel that. As we've made our way through the Gospel of John, we, we're to be saying, who would do such a thing? Look how good he's been. Look how marvelous he is. Look how super powerful he is. Bow down and worship, but instead you want to kill him? That's the core of the gospel, is the, the radical otherworldliness of it. Jesus isn't going to save the way we think he should save. Right. So, so we see that all throughout the Gospel of John. People, some worship, they, they, they see him for who he is. They worship others, reject him, and even want to kill him. And the Gospel of John repeats this theme of showing us his identity. See who he truly is. Almost like he's unmasking the greatest hero you could ever have. See who he truly is, his identity. And then see how gloriously good he is and respond rightly. That's John. He's putting it before us. See his true identity. See how glorious and good he is and worship. Love him. Believe in him. Trust him. Worship him. So today is no different. First, we see his true identity. We see his identity in verses 23 through 26. And here's what I'm going to do because John has repeated a lot of this. And, and for the sake of not repeating, the beginning of this passage, verses 22 through 26, are pointing to his identity. And sort of the back end, the end of it, verses 32 or 30 through 38, are doing the exact same thing. 
And so I'm kind of lumping them together. And then we're going from there to focus in on his glory and goodness in the middle section that we read here. So, so first his identity. The setting is the feast of dedication. Jesus is once again at the temple under a covering called the colonnade of Solomon. So imagine, picture an outdoor covering. It's winter time. Could have been very much like it is outside right now. And on the east side, on the outside of the temple, there was this covered area with huge mega pillars where Jesus is walking through. People are gathered around him, questioning him. They're saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? How long will you keep us here listening and waiting? And they make this demand. If you are the Christ, the Savior, tell us plainly. And Jesus actually responds to them in verse 25. He says, I have, I have told you and you do not believe. And how has he told them? He, he goes on. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. <clears throat> Jesus is saying, all the miraculous things you have already seen me do and the way you have seen me live, all of it declares to you who I truly am. And it has been plainly obvious to you. So if you were to go back and look at all the amazing things Jesus has done in the gospel of John, Jesus is declaring that is enough proof for you to say, truly, this is the great Savior. Truly, this is him, the savior that we all need, the great rescuer, the great redeemer. We don't need to look anywhere else for a hero to rescue us. One, one who does greater works than all of the, the so-called saviors and heroes that came before. One who is greater has come. And so let's worship. But they, but they don't do that. And we, we've seen... We've seen Jesus do miracles that no normal man could do. We've seen him with an unmatched compassion for people. We've seen him speak with unmatched wisdom and knowledge of God that even in the Jews' eyes probably would have been somewhat miraculous because Jesus was not trained under a rabbi. So we've seen lots of miraculous things. And in all of that, Jesus has said things about his identity that are pretty clear and obvious. He called himself the son, of, the son of man, which for the Jews would have quickly connected to this promised savior of Daniel chapter 7. This one who would be sent of God, who would reign over God's people in the form of a son of man. In chapter 5, he had already called himself the son of God and, and called God his father, making himself equal with God. And they had already been riled up about that. In the same chapter, he said, the, all of the Old Testament scriptures are bearing witness about me. He's saying they're pointing, they're talking about me. He said at one point he had come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent him. Even in the passage we, we were in last week, earlier in chapter 10, Jesus, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He wasn't saying he is merely a good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. And for the Jews, that would have meant something. We spent two months talking about this at Psalm 23 and how we connected it to Ezekiel 34, that in Ezekiel 34 is the promised good shepherd. When God made a promise to his people that he himself would come to his people and would be and would take on the role as a gloriously good and perfect shepherd. 
He himself, God himself, would come and save his people. He would be the greatest shepherd, their shepherd and savior. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am that good shepherd. How am I doing all of these things that you're seeing? Because I am the great shepherd. I am. He has used that several times, hasn't he? I am the great, long-awaited Savior and shepherd, God incarnate, promised from Ezekiel 34. What other hero? We're to to see all that and say, what what other hero do you want? What other hero could you look for? What other Savior would you possibly long for? Don't you see it? Jesus was pretty clear here. In verses 32 through 38, taking that backside, it's essentially repeating the same thing. Jesus is claimed to be God, to be the Son of God, and so to be God. And people are offended by Jesus and his claims. Even Jesus points out what could be somewhat confusing at first as you read verses 34 through 36. He talks about, I, I say they are gods, and that's a lowercase gods. And what is, he, what, is he, what is he meaning by that? Jesus is quoting a psalm. And in the Old Testament, they had accepted that human judges who were set up over God's people, kings and judges, at times were called lowercase gods. In a sense of, not in a sense of they had this great power and authority as God, but they, they were essentially placed there to oversee the people, to do justice, to do righteousness. They were to rule over God's people. And so in, the, in a sense, lowercase God is used. And Jesus is saying, you look back at that and y'all are okay with these judges at times being called a lowercase God and God himself actually shows up. The one, the son set apart by God, the father is sent from heaven here. And you're offended that I say I'm the son of God. You see, Jesus is sort of turning it around on them. Why would you not be offended about what's said in the Old Testament, but you'd be offended about me? That's often what we see. In our city, I, I encounter a lot of people, I encounter just people out and about in the city. I, I encounter uh, uh, waiters and waitresses. And we often try to strike up just a conversation. And I'll ask if I can pray for them. And often that leads to, sometimes they say, oh, no, thank you. Um, sometimes, most of the time, people will say, yes, will you please pray about this? And that leads me to be able to ask more questions, okay? Do you, do you, do you have a faith? Do you, are, you know, all, all of that. And oftentimes, here's, what's com- here's what kind of comes out. Oh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, so I'm dabbling in the spiritual world, but I am not religious. So when it comes to praying to Jesus, I heard one person say, one, one young guy say, well, I was, I was sharing with him about Jesus and him being the king and all this. And he, he says, oh, every once in a while, I'll pray to Jesus, but I'll pray to different ones and everything. That's a very new agey thing. It's a very new agey thing. And do you know, there, in, in new age, there is a Jesus, but it's not this Jesus. There is a Jesus who maybe will answer my prayers. There's a Jesus that they think can do things supernaturally. I'll, I'll just come out and say, it's not, it's not the real Jesus. There, there's demonic things that are happening. But do you know, they will recognize Jesus. They will say, oh, he made things happen. because He, he was spiritual too. 
He was tapping into the universe and doing all this manifesting and all of this. But when it comes to recognizing that he's God, no. Because what does that then imply? That he's got the authority. That he's got the say-so. If he's God, that means he rules over things. And if he's God and I recognize he's God, that means he rules over me. So I'm going to reject that. It's been very sad as I've even just studied that more and more, recognizing that so much of that is in our city and so much of that is young people. That is grabbing your generation. It is hunting your generation. This new age view of Jesus and this new age view of spirituality. And so John is almost beckoning you. No, no look to Jesus. He is God. There are people who will say God, Jesus never claimed to be God. They must have never read John. Because it's pretty obvious, right? So young people, be on guard. Look and see. No, he is God. Be affirmed as you go back into your workplaces and back among your friends and gen- your, your generation. Just know, take that with you. No, he is God. And he is God of my life. And he is God over all creation, whether they deny it or not. Amen. And take that with you. Jesus clearly putting forward, he is, he is just no ordinary shepherd. This is God incarnate who has come. Everyone's response should have been, I say this all the time, my kids have started saying this, oh my. We say it all the time, oh my, oh my. Let's trust him, let's believe him, let's worship him. But they don't. They don't. Verse 31, they're ready to stone Jesus on the spot. It astounds us that people could see what Jesus did and yet not believe in him. People often say it now. If I just saw Jesus today, if I just heard him teaching today, I would believe and I would follow him. But it's not true. That's not true. People were in front of him, hearing him, seeing him, tangibly touching him, and yet did not believe. And Jesus tells us why in verse 26. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, saints, I will just say, these passages, they are too much to handle. There is so much here. And I was talking with Rob about it. I don't know, got to break this up or something. Like, you know, let's just go at it because John repeats himself over and over again. So we're going to get back to these. But these are deep, rich theological truths. There there are the, the doctrines of grace are packed full into these verses. So just know that. Just know I'm not going to be able to handle every little part of, these, of this passage, but I will do my best. And as we, we sort of refresh and move over. So verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The last several weeks, we've, we've talked about shepherds and sheep a lot. We've, we've talked about how sheep learn their shepherd's voice and can distinguish it from other people trying to call them. Sheep hear the voice of their shepherd and respond. And Jesus is saying, you are not responding to my shepherd's call because you are not my sheep. It's not your identity. You are not my sheep. And so that brings us to asking the question, well, how do people become sheep that belong to Jesus? How can anyone become a sheep then? Well, that is the glorious, wonderful mystery of God's sovereign grace. That is the glorious, wonderful mystery of his 
undeserved kindness upon us. The Bible tells us that since before the foundations of the world. See, I can't even. This is too much to handle. That is just. Just saying that line is too much. The Bible tells us that since before the foundations of the world. God the Father would look upon undeserving people and he would choose to grab some of them. He would choose to set his affection upon them and give them as a sheep to God the Son, to Jesus, to be their shepherd. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 6, if you remember, that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father has granted it to them and draws them. This is what we would call sovereign grace. God's authority and might and power over all things. And I love it. We have a little children's book that talks about that. And there's a, it simplifies it. And it's called The Biggest Story. And he, just at one point, he says, how, like, essentially, how do we wrestle with God choosing? He said, well, he's God. So he gets to choose. He's God. He gets that place. He gets to do that. Why? Because he's God. But the miracle of it is that he even chooses to do that at all. That's the flip side of that coin, right? The miracle of it is that God looks upon a sinful world of people who curse him and are disobedient to him and hate him and love the world and love sinful things. And yet he would look upon us even before the foundation of the world and would say, I'm going to set my affection upon that one. I'm going to go after that one. I'm making them my sheep. I'm setting them apart before they could ever earn anything. Before they could ever do anything good or be impressive, I'm setting them apart just simply because I I want to. Just simply because I want to put my affection upon them. That is incredible. That is God's sovereign grace, His undeserved loving kindness, and He does it sovereignly. And so the Father sets them apart, sets His affection upon them, So that the shepherd, his son, would go and gather them. So the mission of Jesus, this great savior and shepherd that we see in the Bible, is he comes to the world to save his sheep. The ones the father has set apart for him. The ones the father has given him, Jesus says. And he's gathering his sheep to him. And those sheep are scattered all over. And he has walked this earth as he walked the earth We saw him calling out to his sheep, speaking the words of truth and life. And and we see those who are set apart, those who are set apart sheep, they hear Jesus. And what do they do? They follow him. And they're in all different places, aren't they? He purposes, and I love it. You see his sovereign grace as he purposes to go through Samaria, where no Jew would purpose to go. They go around Samaria. And he chooses to go to Samaria. Why? Because he knew he had a sheep there. And he would meet at the well. And he's a good shepherd. And he's gathering his sheep. And he met the Samaritan woman, raggedy, living a sinful life. And what does he do? He pulls her out of that. He calls her to him. And she follows him. And what does she do? She goes into her city and she begins to tell them about him. Come see And the city believes in him. 
Jesus knew his sheep were there. And so he's going and he's gathering sheep from all sorts of places, all over the place. He gathers in in chapter 1 his very first disciples. He's gathering them, he's calling them, and they're following him. Chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. Chapter 5, the man paralyzed for 38 years. He goes and he calls him. He follows him. The blind man who was blind from birth in chapter 9, he calls him and he follows him and he worships him. And Jesus has continued gathering sheep even today, hasn't he? This room. This room, the great shepherd Saving, the great shepherd calling to him, gathering his sheep, whom the father has set apart and set his affection upon. And that is what we are doing. Just very quickly, that is what we are participating in when we share the words of truth and life, the gospel. It's as, this, this is what is so freeing. Because some people say, for those who believe in sovereign grace, some people will say, why do you ever evangelize them? If God has set his affection on some and their sheep and all of this, why, why would you ever evangelize? Do you know what it actually does for us? It actually stirs in us an eagerness and an anticipation and an excitement to share this good news, to share the gospel. Because as we share, we can trust Jesus has sheep here. Jesus has sheep all over the place. And we don't have to try to necessarily fight to convince them. We just share his truth his words of life, and it's as his voice going out, just as he was all throughout the gospel of John. It's as he is calling out to his sheep. And what will happen? Those who are his will hear his, his words, and their ears will begin to flicker, and they'll hear the voice of their shepherd through a measly little attempt to share the gospel, and they'll follow Now, there's a mystery even in that because there's so much mystery. I had heard the gospel several times, I believe, growing up. I didn't grow up in church, but I had heard the salvation story. I was through several different ways. And I did not love Jesus. I did not follow Jesus. I did not submit my life to Jesus as king of my life and God. But then, one night, almost out of nowhere, I heard the same gospel. I saw the same, these brothers and sisters sharing the gospel. I heard it. And that night was different. Completely different. And all I can chalk it up to is the sovereign grace of God. Just like Paul, on his way to arrest more Christians and throw them in jail, Jesus had allowed it several times. But that time, on his way to Damascus, Jesus said, that's enough. You're mine. And I'm gathering my sheep and I've had enough. Come to me. That's all I can chalk it up to. There's a point where Jesus says, that's enough. I'm gathering you to me now. That's all I can chalk it up to for those who have heard the gospel over and over again. And then all of a sudden, there's this explosion of life and following him. The Jesus has said, the great shepherd has finally said, that, that's enough. Follow me now. Jesus is continuing to share. And so that gives us a confidence to share freely. 
It gives us a joy to share without trying to make things happen. Because we can just trust. Just Jesus, let your voice go out through your word. And we'll trust that you will gather your sheep to you. That's the hope of a pastor every single Sunday. That's the hope of a pastor in in a counseling moment. Jesus, I'm just going to try to share you and share your words of life and trust that by your spirit, you will do work. You will gather, you will correct, you will do the shepherd work needed, Lord. God, as we see this, God is the center of our salvation. It's, it's all because of him and it's all brought about through him. And, and those truths are not intended to, for us to question and criticize God. Those truths are intended for us to see how undeservingly good he has been to us and how good he is to people and who, those whom he has called his sheep that we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it. He is just simply incredibly gracious. And so we are to respond how? Incredibly glad. A glad church, a glad home, glad Christians celebrate God's sovereign grace. You can never move on. It's a never-ending stream of gladness when you just keep looking upon the gospel and say, I have, I have gained everything I did not earn, this goodness I have not deserved, and yet how he has looked upon me amazes me. And the outworking, outflowing of just being, of just peering constantly upon the gospel is a glad heart. Ah, Charles Spurgeon, this will be up on on the screen, a quote. As he was pondering this, how he came to saving faith, he says this. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how, can, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. And that he was the author of my faith. I ascribe my change wholly to God. So good. We've talked about how the simple call of sheep is just to keep looking and knowing our Savior. Our shepherd. Just keep looking upon him. See him in his glory and goodness. He is God. He is who he says he is. And then look and see how good and glorious he is. How good he's been. To us, And we just keep looking at that. We just keep glancing. It's almost like we never stop admiring our good shepherd. That's what we do. There are moments, I don't want to embarrass my wife. There are moments though, where I just look, I'll just look, and, and even for my little girls, I'll just look across the room and I just kind of smile as I look at them. I just say, oh, they're just so sweet. Look at them. Look at their smiles. Look, look how beautiful they are. I I just admire, look at their hair, look at their beautiful rosy cheeks, all of that. Just admiring them, loving them, and my heart growing fond of them. Could I say this? 
The Christian life, the sheep life, is just looking at Jesus that way. Admiring him over and over and over and over and over again. And never stopping. That's the sheep life. That's the sheep life. And so, the following verses, what I would say the middle section of these passages. So it begins and ends with his identity. He is God. He is no ordinary shepherd. And in the middle, how do we see this outworking of this superhero, this this amazingly supernatural savior and shepherd? Well, we see his glory and goodness in, in three specific ways. First, his call. It's the second point, his call. Verse 27, his call. Hear the affection, the, the, the call of Jesus as he talks about calling his sheep. And may it build up and cultivate joy and glad hearts within us. He says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The simple yet profound truth that should stir a glad joy in our hearts Pick up on things like this as you study your word. I'm doing, you know, my yearly Bible reading. I'm reading through and there's big chapters and you're reading and there's just a temptation to move quickly and we're just going to blow through this and I got places to be and things to, you know, places to go and all this kind of thing. But don't miss things like this. He does not consider you merely a sheep. He says, my sheep, my sheep, not just a sheep, But you are my sheep, possessive. Possessive. Who would you rather belong to? Oh, I want to belong to this shepherd. My sheep, you are mine, and I know you. And a proof that we are his sheep is that he calls us, and we follow him. We are awakened to him by the Spirit of God. John has talked about this earlier in the Gospel of John. Nicodemus chapter 4, he's talked about this. The only way we turn to follow Jesus, the only way that we are awakened when we do hear his voice, is by the Spirit of God at work in us, awakening us to what we were dead to, enlivening what was rock solid, this ugly, sin-infested, corrupted heart of ours that were closed to Jesus, like little lost sheep running away from Jesus. And yet his spirit rushes upon us and awakens. Jesus likens it in Nicodemus 4 as wind that blows. You have no idea where it's coming from and where it's going. You have no idea. But when it blows, you see it. When it blows, you see the rustling of the leaves. You know it's there. You feel the effect of it. The Spirit goes as He desires. What He blows upon, He gives life to. And so He calls, and the way we hear and follow is by His Spirit's empowerment, enlivening us. His, his, I love this. His affectionate call becomes irresistible to us by the Spirit. That's what I was talking about earlier. We heard the gospel before, but when the Spirit comes in and enlivens and gives life and opens blind eyes, now that call sounds affectionate and it becomes irresistible and we follow. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. We talked about this last week and in Him knowing you as His sheep, it is in a relationally close 
way. Being the God of the universe, I think sometimes we feel as if it's a distant relationship. He uses words. That's what I love about the original language. It just helps us see what is the articulation. No, when I say I'm knowing you, I mean there is a relational, intimate knowledge of you. And he chooses, it's as as if he chooses to move into close relationship with you to bring you near to him. He knows, we talked about this last week, he knows everything about you. He knows you by name. I love that. I mean, how many of us, you work in a job and you've been there for a year and someone comes by and they don't know your name? How often does that, that, that's offensive. It belittles us. This shepherd has thousands of thousands and thousands of sheep, yet he knows you. That is amazing. You talk about superhero power. How amazing is this great shepherd who calls us? He knows us. He knows everything about you. He knows you by name, your motives, your longing, your loves, your weaknesses, your struggles, your sin. And yet by his grace, he calls you my sheep. I love that. I, maybe I'm just too simple of a guy. But I want to put that on the wall. Jesus says, my sheep. He knows you. He moves into close relationship with you, calling you to know him and follow him. And by his grace at work in you and his power, powerful spirit, you do begin to follow him. I love it. Just, just over and over again. It's, it is all his good initiative towards us. He initiates this relationship. He makes it happen. He calls us, he moves towards us, and then he gives us what we need to respond to him. That is amazing. It all belongs to him. I join in with Charles Spurgeon. I ascribe my change wholly to God. When you consider we were straying like lost sheep in this life, and then he would come to us, and he would know us, and he would call us to him, it should absolutely stir an amazement and a humble, glad joy in our hearts. So a question for you. Are you aware of Jesus' initiative to save you? See, the temptation is there was something, there's a thought there that would say there was something good about me that Jesus would choose me. I guess I am pretty impressive. I guess he would probably want my skill set in his, in his family. But the reality is that's just not the case. And as we ponder, as we think upon his initiative towards us, it should absolutely cultivate a glad and a humble joy. We don't deserve this. He has moved towards us. So what else do I not deserve in the life of the church? What else do I not deserve? I'm just glad to be in the room. I'm just glad to be a part of the family. Second, or third point, I should say, we see his gift, his gift. Verse 28a, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. What an incomprehensible, I can't, you can't even fathom the words. 
What an incomprehensible gift we have received in Christ. When, when you think upon this gift we have been given, it is hard to grasp the magnitude and greatness of it. The, the most incredible gift given to undeserving sheep who were straying and now are brought into the sheepfold of Jesus, undeserving of anything good. And yet the gift of this incredible shepherd to us is eternal life. <laughs> He doesn't give us what we deserve, but he gives us the greatest gift of grace he could ever give us. I, I, I know we hit on this last week as Jesus talked about giving life to his sheep even last Sunday. But when, when John uses this phrase, eternal life throughout his gospel, often our first mindset is going to, that's the future inheritance of eternal life that I'm going towards. John is talking about both that future eternal inheritance of life that you are longing for, hoping for with Christ forever. He is talking about that. But he's also talking about this eternal life, that same eternal life that breaks into today, that causes us to know him and to love him. The life of Christ, the life given by his Holy Spirit, which is an eternal life. And so it is both. It is life for today that is eternal, that carries us into eternity, that we will then bask in, that is waiting for us in eternity with Christ. And so when he talks about eternal life, it is important just to know that because it doesn't just leave us looking ahead like there's eternal life waiting for me. And you know what? Life is just lousy right now. And I'm dry and I'm just, there's nothing in me today. Though we have weak moments and we have tough days, when we realize that eternal life is today. Now, we don't have an over-realized, I'm going to use some fancy words, I try not to do this, an over-realized eschatology where it's like, so everything, we shouldn't get sick anymore because there's eternal life in us. And we should never get depressed or sad or sorrowful or any of that or have anxiousness because there's eternal life in us. And if you do feel that, it's just because you lack faith. Or maybe you're not even really Christ. That is just not true. And that is not true. But there is a, tr a reality that the eternal life you wait for through the Spirit is here. Hope has come through Christ and life has come through His Spirit already dwelling in you. It's how you love Him. It's how you even lean towards Him. You don't lean towards Jesus because there's something, just some strength in you. It is because the eternal life of Christ is flowing through your body and your heart and your mind, leading you to lean towards Christ. It is the eternal life already. And so it's the already, not yet in a sense. It's this eternal life that we, we taste of today. It's grace for today. And I love that song that we sing, and bright hope for tomorrow, isn't it? Grace for today and bright hope for tomorrow. This eternal life of Christ. And what does that stir in us? It is it stirs hope in the Christian. It stirs, stirs hope in the little sheep following Christ. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter. It's a living hope present in us today that has a hopefulness of what awaits us in eternity. That my shepherd is walking, providing life for me and in me today, and he will continue to do so as he leads me into eternity. And it's a living hope that we live with. We know what awaits us despite, despite the hurts and pains and loss of today. 
And here's what I love as we're getting close to close. It is him keeping that inheritance of eternal life for you. And then it is also him keeping you for that inheritance of eternal life. And that leads us to our last and final point. His, his grip. His grip. Our final point, his hold on us. His grip upon us. Verses 28b through 29. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Your shepherd is holding you in his hand. His grip firmly fixed around you. And should we question his grip on us? He takes it a step further. He says in verse 29, My father who has given them to me, these precious sheep, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Just in case, just in case we were doubting the grip of our shepherd, he says, the Father is even holding you. And me and the Father are one. We're in this together. We're holding you as one. This grip upon you, firmly fixed around you. Precious saints, as we read this, I mean, you talk about what other hero do we need? What other, the, the, the supernatural power of your shepherd to rescue you? His call, he uses his voice and he sends his spirit and he gathers you. He changes your heart and he, he brings you near to him and he knows you. What power the shepherd has. His, his life that he gives to you, this gift, this eternal gift that you would never perish. What an, what an amazing power he has to give you such a thing. And to ensure that there's a hope because you will never perish. What power he has. And his grip. His grip that will never let you go. There is no safer grip that you could be held by. There is no safer hands that could ever hold you. I think we're to see that. This Judas the hammer he, by God's grace, was used to rescue God's people, to rededicate the temple. But you know what's going to happen? He died. He died. And he couldn't ensure the longevity of their salvation, of their safety. The temple destroyed. The temple he fought to rededicate later, crushed. There was no lasting salvation from that hero. But this great shepherd, God incarnate, this shepherd can save you to the uttermost. There is no one like him. He is unmatched and marvelous and great. And what I love too, you know this, the gospel, you hear this all the time. How could he ensure that you would never perish? <laughs> because of the moment he perished on the cross. By him taking the destruction of God upon himself so that his sheep could be saved to the uttermost and never know what it is to perish eternally. What a good, marvelous 
supernatural, if I could say this, I'm so dorky, superhero type of savior we have. Unmatched. J.C. Ryle, you know I had to quote from J.C. Ryle. Christ declares that his people will never perish. Weak as they are, they will all be saved. Not one of them shall be lost and cast away. Not one of them shall miss heaven if they err. They shall be brought back. If they fall, they shall be raised. The enemies of their soul may be strong and mighty, but their Savior is mightier. And none shall pluck them out of their Savior's hand. Do you believe that for yourself today? Do you believe that, precious saint? If you have wrestled with assurance of faith, the foundation of our assurance and faith is first and foremost the promise of Christ to keep you. That is the assurance of your faith. Not that you are keeping yourself. We sang it earlier. Your grip is weak. Your hold is light. Frail. Oh, but it's Christ who holds you. Strong and true and mighty. Oh my, the the first and foremost, the place you look first for assurance of faith is the promise of Christ to keep you. He didn't call you because you were perfect. We heard that. And so then he doesn't let you go because you're imperfect. It's not as if he was surprised in what he got. He knew you. He knows everything about you. He knew what he was getting when he called you. And you were imperfect then. How much more now that you are his? That's Romans 5. How much more now will he keep you? And so in this, we rejoice. We rejoice in this. He didn't call you because you were perfect and he doesn't let you go because you're imperfect. He promises to keep those he calls and to work in them to bring about the growing fruit of a faith-filled life. The spirit at work in us. Spirit at work. Some people will hesitate to preach that and to say that and to think that or talk about that because they say, well, then we just, it just gives freedom for licentiousness, to live however we want to live, to just enjoy sin. Well, no, Paul says, no, we haven't been given this grace so we can just keep living how we want. We've been freed to live for Jesus and I love Jesus and I want to live for him and I want to serve him. So it's a faith-filled life that is encapsulated, kept and covered and held within the grace of our Lord and Savior. Oh, what assurance that is for those of us who often feel as if our faith is so, so weak. Oh, I praise Him. This passage once again ends as so many other passages have in the Gospel of John. Some are blind to the glory and goodness of Jesus and they reject His divine claims while others hear the same teaching and look at the same Jesus. And by the grace of God, they say, as they said in this last verse, everything about Him is true. We believe. Oh. Church, by the grace of God, may that even be you today. Everything about him is true. I believe. That's not just for coming to faith in Christ. That's daily life for the sheep. That's daily life for the Christian. We keep looking upon him and we keep saying, that's true of him. 
that's true of him. His call, that's true of him. His grace, that's true of him. His grip on me, that's true of him. His heart for me that he calls me my sheep, that's true of him. The only way I follow him is by his grace and his spirit upon me, that's true of him. The fact that he will not let me perish, it's true of him. And sometimes you have to preach that to your heart. Sometimes you may have to turn on worship music and sing that to your heart. But that's the daily life for the Christian. It wasn't just we, we look at him once and we say, yeah, that's true of him, I believe. And then we go on by ourselves, just torn to shreds. No, it's the daily ongoing life of the sheep and the Christian that says, that's true of you, Jesus. I believe it. And I'm trusting you. I'm rejoicing in you. My hope's in you. And my assurance is in you as you keep me for that day. Amen. Amen. May that be so of us, even today, church. May we never stop looking to our shepherd. We're moving on. We're not going to hear about him being a shepherd after this. But don't you forget, he is your great shepherd. Let's pray.